Hey there, please listen to the end of this episode for a very special commentary. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. Drew Zagorski here. Looking for a home loan? There's only one name you need to know. Teresa Springer of Movement Mortgage. Teresa brings decades of experience in lending, so she and her dedicated team will get you the right loan for your specific needs and probably save you a bundle of time and money in the process. How do I know? She's been my mortgage maven for years. So no matter where you live, if you're looking for a home loan, call Teresa Springer and the Mavens at Movement Mortgage at 360-798-4161. Or get the ball rolling by going to TeresaSpringer.com forward slash you don't say and clicking on the yellow get started button. Again, that number is 360-798-4161. 4161 and the website is teresaspringer.com forward slash you don't say. Phonetically, that's there's a springer.com forward slash you don't say. Teresa Springer, NMLS 70667. Movement Mortgage LLC supports equal housing opportunity. NMLS ID 39179. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Movement Mortgage LLC is licensed by California Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act, number 4131054, Oregon ML 5081, Washington CL-39179. Interest rates and products are subject to change without notice and may or may not be available at the time of the loan commitment or lock-in. Borrowers must qualify for all benefits. Movement Mortgage is a registered trademark of the Movement Mortgage LLC, a Delaware limited liability company. Phew! So here's the story. A couple weeks back, I watched Jerry Seinfeld's new stand-up, 23 Hours to Kill, on Netflix. Really pretty good watch if you like him. Anyway, he goes on a riff about the post office. I'll share a bit of that here, but bear in mind, I'm no Seinfeld. Here goes. I really don't like using the term mail in email using the same term that we use for the postal service. I don't see a lot of overlap there. One of them occurring in digital fiber optic hyperspace, the other a dazed and confused distant branch of the Cub Scouts bumbling around the streets in embarrassing shorts and jackets with meaningless patches and victory medals, driving four miles an hour, 20 feet at a time on the wrong side of a mentally handicapped Jeep. I love how the Postal Service has this financial emotional meltdown every three to five years that their business model from 1630 isn't working anymore. I can't understand how a 21st century information system based on licking, walking, and a random number of pennies is struggling to compete. Thanks. Thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. You'll be here every Tuesday throughout the pandemic. So, see, I told you I'm no Seinfeld. Anyway, a day or two later, I get one of my daily newsletters. This one from Michael Smirkanish's website. I listen to him daily on Sirius Radio, the POTUS channel, if you're interested. In that day's briefing, I spotted an article titled, Trump Goes Postal. I think to myself, self, how is this a newsworthy thing? Isn't that a daily occurrence at this point? But it hooked me and I read on. The story by Eric Schnurr discussed our president's desire to take down the Postal Service. Now, Schnurr's article has a fact check of sorts on the demise of the Postal Service. The USPS is actually one of the most efficient and profitable government services we have. Maybe the only one. I don't know. And you know what? They've even got a line of apparel for all of us citizens whom they serve. Just go to store.usps.com and click on the gift section if you don't believe me. And some of it's actually kind of cool. Anywho, Schnurr's article presented the case extremely well, with facts, mind you. He went into some details about how the USPS is one of the services the federal government delivers that truly does deliver to everyone, everywhere, all the time. Efficiently. Very efficiently. And this includes everyone in the boonies who, without this service, would need to travel hours a week to get their mail or pay a private delivery service a premium for it. So that got me to thinking about how much our government does deliver to us, and really, much of it in a pretty solid way. Think about it. Public schools, fire and police departments, streets and sanitation, and so on. Now, many of these are not necessarily services from the federal government, but from local governments. 
But bear in mind, they get a lot of their funding from the Fed. So in a way, our federal government makes them possible. Think about it. The traditional way we get government services is as follows. We get taxed. Those revenues go toward paying for things that the government delivers, roads, schools, and yeah, defense, and so much more. We all pay for these things. So what if we were to change that? And what if that change were for the greater good? More specifically, what if our government focused on delivering services for the greater good? And that brought me back to this cat, Eric Schnurrer. I started to do some homework on who he was. Turns out he's a big thinker, a really big thinker. He's a guy with a vision for what our government services might look like in the future as technology continues to permeate our lives and customized services become ubiquitous. So joining me today is Eric Schnurrer, and here are his bona fides. Eric is the president of Public Works, LLC, a policy consulting firm advising public officials nationwide on a wide range of policy issues. And he's the founder of the Greater Good Initiative, which you can find online at greatergoodgathering.org. Again, that's greatergoodgathering.org. That group brings together citizens and thought leaders across the country to address how technology is changing our government, the economy, and society. Eric got his start working in the White House during college, writing speeches for President Jimmy Carter, and he's been involved with public policymaking at the highest levels for more than 40 years. He served in all three branches of federal government and for numerous state governments as a speechwriter, prosecutor, policy advisor, general counsel, and chief of staff, and has worked in the private sector as a journalist, professor, business executive, and social entrepreneur. His latest venture is Virtuous, that's V-I-R-T-U dot U-S, a startup that he designed to boost investment in human capital and public goods in an era of declining public sector interest. Okay, so joining me today is Eric Schnurrer, and if you didn't gather by his pretty impressive CV, he's um, a very thoughtful guy, well-educated, and is deeply, deeply read on the subject we're talking about today, which is kind of reimagining government for the greater good. And so thanks, Eric, for joining me today. Um, Thank you for, for having me. Yep. And what, what I'd like to talk about first is really, you know, I, I used a, a snippet, a reading of some of the Seinfeld recent Seinfeld standup where he, you know, kind of rags on the postal service and talks about being outdated and unprofitable, but we know other figures in our government are doing the same thing. And the reality is the facts just don't support that. So let's just kind of start there for a couple minutes. And why don't you talk to us about what the USPS gets right. And, you know, I, I think based on my read in and understanding of what they're doing over there is they are maybe one of the government services that are getting it right for how services should be delivered. What, what are your thoughts? Well, um, that's a big subject, obviously. Uh, yeah. The, the easiest way to say what they're getting right is that, um, they they do in fact manage to deliver mail and packages to every single home and every location in America, which is a pretty big job, uh, practically every day. And, and Americans um, don't even need to think about that. No, the mail shows up, uh, and right. in only the rarest of circumstances, like nine eleven, has uh, the mail failed to be delivered. They deliver to the remotest parts of um, Alaska by uh, a seaplane. They deliver to the bottom of the Grand Canyon by mule. Um, you know, it's a pretty impressive logistical uh, operation. And um, for a more direct comparison, you know, in, in the course of our lifetimes, you know, uh, uh, private package delivery services have sprung up that everybody knows, mm -hmm. like uh, um, uh, FedEx and DHL and things like that, um, that, you know, compete against the post office in that particular line of service. Though the post office offers uh, uh, one-day delivery service like FedEx, and uh, you know, they, they offer a guarantee 
of delivery. Um, I've used both FedEx and the post office. And, um, you know, I, like, I don't want to say anything bad about FedEx. I like them. I think they, they do a really high quality service, but I actually, I had something fail to be delivered on time that was very, very costly as a result, uh, by FedEx. They were not able to deliver. I have, I've never had the post office fail to meet their one day delivery guarantee. So, you know, it's a high quality service and it's for a fraction of the price of what private delivery services do. So um, they, they're, it's not like they're perfect like any other institution, but they do provide a high quality service that can compete with the private sector uh, on uh, timeliness, which is what you want, and um, for a fraction of the price. So you, and- you can't really argue the post office doesn't do its job. Right. And let's not lose sight of the fact, too, that it's a union business, right? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know about why well, I'm assuming FedEx is not unionized, but um, uh, no yeah. UPS is, but uh, uh, UPS is. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and UPS is an example of a, a company that treats workers fairly well. I mean, they have a, a, a college scholarship and training program that they do. Um, so it's not like the post office is the only one that does a decent job, but to disparage the post office simply because it's a public institution, I think is, is uh, patently wrong. Right. So, um, and, and let's talk about the profitability aspect of things, you know, our Congress throughout the, the years, you know, one of the things they do is require the post office and no other, no other private business. You mentioned this in the article that I mentioned in the intro uh, about Trump going postal. No other private business is even required to f- forward fund pensions. And uh, our Congress, in their infinite wisdom, has deemed to require our post office to do so for 30 years of forward funding. And so that has a huge impact on the bottom line. Uh, yeah. And, you know, this is a recurrent issue now that uh, even in the context of um, relieving states and localities of the uh, crushing financial burdens they're facing in COVID-19, um, you know, Mitch McConnell has uh, uh, basically insisted that the problem is really underfunding of public pensions and uh, he doesn't want to give money to bail out pension systems. There, there are clearly problems with public pensions in this country, but there are similar problems with private pensions. Uh, over the course of the last couple of generations, as a country, we have inadequately funded uh, our pension systems, which is um, you know shortchanging virtually every worker in the country, and that's not good. Uh, so you could argue that uh, what Congress has required of the post office that they forward fund their pensions uh, would be a great idea, but it would be a great idea that uh, could then be applied to everybody, and clearly they don't have any interest in that. What they've done with the uh, requirement of forward funding of the pensions in the post office is basically just to make it look artificially worse than it is as a business operation and to try to drive it into bankruptcy and to make it uncompetitive with its private competitors, which otherwise it would be out competing. So it's it's something of a a subterfuge, really. Yeah, Uh, setting them up to fail. (laughs) Yes. Um, so I think what the bigger conversation is in, you know, after I did my read in and research on you and your organization, your background and what you're thinking about and talking about with people, um, this whole concept of government for the greater good and the, the, the convergence of technology with systems and, and ways to deliver customized services, you know, our, our government has done things always, obviously, traditional way. They tax us. They take that money. Um, they pay for the services that we receive. N- now, I I struggled as I was thinking through this. Outside of the post office, it's, it's a challenge to really come up with how they do that in an equitable way. And I think the easiest thing, the thing that came to my ma- mind, first of all, was public school systems. Um, I mean, if you just look at that, economically depressed or inner city, some rural areas don't get the same quality of schooling that affluent areas do. So how do you see the future of how 
public schools, for example, and I, and this is not a small question, I know, but how do you see? Actually, you, you've gotten through about five questions so far and you right. haven't finished the question. Right, right, right. So how do, how do you see this kind of shaken out in terms of how government services can be paid for and delivered equitably, quote unquote, for the greater good? <laughs> Okay, well, rather than trying to answer the entire thing there in one answer, let me kind of start at the start at the beginning where we left off at the post office. I'm trying mm-hmm. to work our way through. And we'll see where the see where the conversation goes. Um, I mean, as as you mentioned, the the whole point with the post office is not the post office per se, but it's it's emblematic of how you can think about government. Um, somewhat differently than how it's normally talked about in political and ideological conversations. And that's a point that I've tried to make for a long time. And that I, I, I think when I first started talking about this a decade or two ago, um, people, people rejected this notion, but now I, I think it's, it's become more commonplace. And that mm-hmm. is that you can think of government the way we think of businesses. And I don't mean that in the way it's usually tossed around in, in the political process, they like government should run like a business. There, there are ways in which government can run like a business, i.e., let's be more efficient. Um, and there are ways in which it can't uh, because government has different objectives. It's not just about the bottom line. In a lot of cases, it's about doing things that that cost money but need doing, and that's that's why they're being done by by the government. But um, my argument's always been that government is essentially like another business um, uh, entity or like an industry in, in a lot of ways. And that, you know, basically it has to compete in a market. It has to maintain its customers and it has mm-hmm. some advantages that, um, that other businesses don't because most businesses don't have armies and jails where they can compel you to buy their product or else you're in big trouble. Um, but the argument that, oh, government is a monopoly and so therefore uh, it doesn't have to play by the same rules is not true. There are monopolies in the private sector. And what's more is, you know, ultimately over time, if, if government can't balance its books and if it can't deliver the goods that people want for what it's charging them, um, people will revolt in one way or another, whether it's peacefully at the ballot box or, or non-peacefully. Uh, at some point, Governments, like businesses, have to be pleasing their customers. They have to give people a feeling that they're delivering value for the money or they're they're not going to be in business for very long. And right. they do have to be able to support themselves economically in the long term. Uh, even, you know, the notion that governments can print unlimited amounts of money and, and um, uh, bankrupt themselves and the rest of the world – uh, it's not entirely true. There's a limit to that. And, and governments have reached that limit in the past. There's only so much debt you can do. Um, right. So they do function under a lot of the same constraints as other businesses. So that's, you know, that's number one. Number two, which I think gets us into the rest of where you want to go about what does this happen in the future is once you start thinking of government as something like a business, that it has a lot of the same com- competitive constraints, um, you start to see that that government is going to be affected by technology in the same way that other industries have been. And over the last 20 years, you've seen the internet undermine just about every information-centered or knowledge-centered industry in, in the world, whether it's music or movies or TV right. or, or print right. media. They're, they're, all, they're all being changed dramatically. And you know, my view is that government is going to be changed by technology in much the same way. Right. And it's like the, the, when you're on, when you're on the web and you go see an ad about some sort of running shoe or something, and you click on that ad or you go to that website, it's no small coincidence that suddenly your Facebook feed and whatever other social media you use starts to get peppered with athletic footwear ads. Right. right? And so there's this big data thing, which is probably another whole conversation, but um, yeah. well, there's, a, there's two sides to this. One is what you're describing is the way in which um, businesses are increasingly becoming like governments in their ability to surveil us and to direct our behavior and right. to monopolize markets and so forth. The, the flip side of that is that governments are increasingly becoming and will become more like um, uh, more, more like businesses in their having to compete uh, for customers. Um, I mean, a real simple example of this is in the, the early days of the internet, uh, there was a, um, there was a woman in West Virginia 
who uh, who baked cookies and everybody liked her cookies. Mm-hmm. And she put them up on the internet for sale and they took off. For some reason, they became very popular and people started ordering her cookies from all over the world. Uh, so somebody living in a, um, a small town, an isolated area with a small business suddenly had a global market for her goods. And right. you, you in Oregon or me in uh, Philadelphia, we could be ordering this person's uh, uh, cookies, which is not something you think of ordering from thousands of miles away. But the internet changed all that and knocked down distance as a determiner of where you could be serving or where you could be getting your services from. So the same thing is starting to happen with governments and is going to happen right. more so. And when that happens, how we think about what a government is and how, how it's tied to a geographical area starts to collapse as well. So we're going to be the, able the to- borders, the, borders, the borders yeah. start to yes. fall away. Yes, as is happening in lots of areas, uh, you know, areas of life all over the world. Right. Hey, do you have an interesting story to tell about your life or your business and how you got into it? Maybe you know somebody who does, or maybe you've got an idea about a topic that might be interesting or funny to have a conversation about. Hey, if you do, shoot me an email to info at you don't say dot net. Again, that's info at you don't say dot net or post a comment on our Facebook page. We're at YDS Stories. Again, that's YDS Stories on Facebook. And hey, maybe I'll be talking to you soon. In terms of the technology, you know, um, that I think this pandemic has kind of fast forwarded a lot of things in terms of the use of technology, how it's used for productivity. I mean, it's all, it's been there for years. It's just this event, I think, has really accelerated things. So there's a lot of technology out there. It's some of it's fully realized. Some of it's in a nascent state. But as we move toward a transition of government services, government in general, being delivered more profitably through technology, um, we need to also acknowledge that technology is an ecosystem and it's going to constantly evolve, which, you know, I go back to that socioeconomic aspect of it for people who, who have a decent income and up. updating your software, getting a new laptop is not a huge issue. Um, How do we overcome that for people who are in more depressed situations? Yeah, well, that's a big problem, particularly now with with schools. Right. Uh, There's roughly a quarter of the population that uh, doesn't have adequate internet access, either because of uh, a lack of uh, Wi-Fi connectivity or because they don't have the computer to do it. And uh, there was just an article last week in the Boston Globe that um, uh, roughly a quarter of the kids in the Boston school system have not signed on once to uh, classes since the start of the shutdown. Um, and um, I'm sure some kids are just playing, playing hooky like always. Right. But it's right. not 25%. That 25% are kids that that are now being shut out of uh, what is supposedly public education because they don't have what it now takes to get through the schoolhouse door, which is uh, computer and online access. So right. yeah, it's a serious, serious problem. And there are some places around the country that are trying to address this. Um, uh, Los Angeles uh, you know, has about a quarter of their kids unable to access classes, and they've made a commitment to... Um, uh, you know, get computers and and Wi-Fi capability for every kid in Los Angeles, which is going to cost millions of dollars. Uh, Philadelphia is doing something similar, but basically, instead of getting them new computers, they're I mean, they're going to have to get some to supplement what they've got there. But they're basically taking the computers out of the existing school offices and school buildings, which of course are closed, and distributing them to kids. Uh, there are charitable efforts around the country to do something like this. There are rural areas mm-hmm. where they're experimenting with uh, putting Wi-Fi on school buses or having Wi-Fi on the outside of schools where parents can drive their kids to the school building and sit in the parking lot and get connected that way. Um, none of that is really a, an effective long-term answer if we're going to be having kids doing distance learning to some significant degree as we're going to have to uh, come the fall. Uh, and in the long term, uh, I don't think there's any doubt that education is going to become something that's delivered more and more online. Right. And, um, you know, it's becoming clear that that not having um, not having a computer hookup is the 21st century equivalent of not having electricity. And, uh, you know, we 
we addressed that issue in this country in the um, uh, the 1930s with uh, rural electrification. Um, and, you know, that's generally been the approach we've taken to utilities, that it becomes uh, necessary to be, to be a part of society, to have certain certain services that are delivered that because of the economics, the market isn't going to deliver. It's basically, you know, most affects rural areas, although it also will affect uh, urban poor who can't afford for things, uh, can't afford to pay for things. But uh, yeah, we wind up generally having such things delivered um, uh, societally by the government. And, you know, 90 years ago, there really wasn't much dispute about that. Now it's become an ideological minefield and we're going to have fights over whether uh, collectively as a society, we can and should be delivering uh, computer access to everybody who can't afford it. Uh, and if we don't, we're going to have a generation of kids who are going to grow up essentially without access to schools. Right. And that, that's, that's the sorry state of play is how everything has become just incredibly politicized. You know, everybody's got their jersey on. I think it's going to take somebody or some group of people who really can present something to the population to say, here's how this can happen. And really like any change, it's got to start from the grassroots up. Uh, Well, yes, uh, definitely. Because uh, it's, it's now apparent that uh, our leadership in this country politically, and I would say this about both sides of the aisle, uh, the system has become dysfunctional and our leaders have, have failed us. And, um, I don't know how different that ultimately is. I mean, I think we're, we're living at a time, unfortunately, of particularly poor political leadership and of particularly bad political function. But, um, you know, I had a, an exchange a couple of months ago with uh, Jim Fallows of The Atlantic, who's an old, old mm-hmm. friend of mine, who wrote a piece about um, maybe the collapse of the Roman Empire wasn't so bad. And uh, I and a lot of other people argued with him that, yes, it was actually pretty bad. Yeah. But the, one of the upshots of it was that that social change generally does not come, and this has changed both from the bottom, both good and bad, generally does not come from the top. It tends to come from the bottom. That experiments as to how you solve problems generally do not occur on a large-scale national effort. Um, you know, and I've found in in my work where, you know, I, I've worked with politicians in almost every single state for a long, long time now, and, um, you know, working on trying to come up with innovative solutions to problems. The innovative solutions to problems rarely come at the state level or at the national level. They come from somebody in the neighborhood who sees a problem and thinks somebody ought to do something about it, and I care enough that I'm going to be that person. And they come up with some innovative idea about an after-school program that they put together with their own money and their own time uh, to, you know, have kids do something or other. Or, uh, a business person who feels that uh, their employees need a certain benefit that they're not getting and it's going to help their business to do better and they start providing it on their own. And little things like that, that wind up um, getting some attention of some academic researcher and a study comes out and says, hey, look, this seems to be working. And somebody reads about that and starts advocating for it that we ought to do this on a larger scale. And eventually that filters up to the governors and the members of Congress and the presidents who wind up giving a speech one day that says, you know, there's this great program going on in Ashtabula and we ought to scale this thing up and I'm going to put X millions of dollars into replicating this in communities all around the Mm -hmm. state. And then the country winds up doing that. And that's how most things happen. They don't happen with a member of the Senate or a president or a presidential advisor, even, or a governor, having some brilliant idea one day, you know, nobody's ever thought of this before, but gee, if we put $50 million into solving this problem, we, we could, uh, you know, we could really change things. They come from, uh, like just about everything else in life, a person who has a good idea and applies it and it catches on. And the role of government at higher levels basically becomes to take those things to scale by funding it because they have the capacity to raise funds in a way that very few people do outside of large venture capitals. So that's really the role the government leadership plays. But right now, you know, they're not digging in and saying, here's an idea that works, let's fund it. They're, they're basically, um, you know, tearing down the system uh, right. at all levels of government. And they're busy uh, saying the other side thought of this, so we're, we're against it, regardless uh, of any yes. good it's yeah. going to do. 
Yes, and uh, yeah. you know, to some degree, both sides are are yeah. are guilty of that. Um, and uh, you know, the 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 system is becoming dysfunctional as a result of that. But it's not because government per se can't do anything. Uh, in fact, we need government to do things. There are things that we can only do together rather than separately. And one way or another, we need to figure out how to do that. Why don't you share with us some of the work that and thought that you're doing with your initiative, the Greater Good Gathering? Tell us what's that, what that's all about. And Sure. And yeah, I mean, you're right. It does flow out of what we were just talking about because, um, you know, I, I uh, at the time we're, we're recording this, I haven't heard what your bio of me is, but I'm sure that it indicates for your, your listeners that um, I've spent a lot of my career around government and, and politics. So obviously that's something that I think is important, but um, you know, to go back to a, something we were talking about earlier about the, the effect of technological change in the 21st century is going to be that it undercuts the ability of government to do a lot of what in prior centuries, and particularly in the last century, we came to expect government to do. It's going to be harder for it to do that. Uh, governments are going to break apart in a lot of ways and, and particularly become disconnected from geography. So it's not going to be just government doing what it used to do. Um, I guess that's the the good news if you don't like government. If you do like government or think that that the things that, for the most part, the government was doing in the 20th century, uh, like, uh, you know, providing public goods like public education or welfare services or, or daycare or other things like that, that as, as the public sector uh, will be doing less of that and will have less of an ability to do that, we need to think about, well, where are things like that going to happen from? It's not like we don't need to be educating most kids. or We don't need to have a daycare system for young children so that their parents can go to work and the kids aren't roaming the streets and uh, you know, are, are getting what they need nutritionally and intellectually so they grow up to be good people. It's not like we're not going to need parks that are somehow uh, collectively owned by the community um, so that people have access to open space and things like that. We're going to continue to need public goods, but the ability of the public sector to deliver those is going to be um, dissolving for political and ideological reasons, for economic reasons, and, and most of this driven by technological reasons. So where are these things going to come from? And that was kind of the the origin of this um, idea of the, the greater good gathering mm-hmm. and the, what I've come to call the greater good initiative, which is that you know there, there are things that, that go beyond ourselves some somehow. And I think most people feel this way. There are things you care about other than yourself. There's some, some greater meaning in life, uh, whether it's your, your family or your community or mankind as a whole. Most of us care about having, having an effect and having, having the world be better than just what's happening to us immediately. And that requires working with other people to achieve something. Uh, a lot of times that's done through governmental institutions. But as I said, as, as, as our ability to have governments do these things is, is decaying and going to decay, we have to find other ways uh, to, to contribute to the lives of others and to make the world a better place. And uh, my basic argument has been that the same technologies that are undermining the abilities of governments to do that, which basically means the ability to have a central institution that compels people to do something, whether they want to do it or not, uh, that's being eroded by things like uh, the internet and by blockchain and and technologies like that, that that are radically decentralizing and democratizing. But those same technologies are going to make it possible for people on their own to form organizations that kind of mimic what governments do and that can create the public goods that we that we need to have, whether we like them or not, like education, like healthcare, like public health, uh, like parks, like information, uh, and 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 scientific truth and things like that. Um, all those things that that we can only get by working together collectively, not individually. We're going to have to have mechanisms to uh, to do that in order to advance the the good of all of us together, the greater good, as well as to benefit each of us individually. And how you do that in the 21st century is going to be very, very different from how it's been any previous time in human history, uh, because those institutions are eroding and new institutions are going to have to be created. And that's that's what we're trying to bring people together to talk about. How do you do that? How do you, how do you live a meaningful life in this new technological era? And how can we together uh, work to to build a better world and a more meaningful uh, existence and a more and a more profitable, better existence for all of us. So, who 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 are some of the people you're you're um, gathering with to talk about these things? 
Well, it it originally started with a group of people sitting around my house. I had no interest in starting a gathering per se. Um, we were um, we were getting together to talk about uh, you know the the general ideas that I've had about how technology is undermining government and and what to to do about that. And uh, it was directed towards a specific purpose of a, a technology startup that I'm in the process of starting up to try to try to provide some alternative to traditional government as as government services decline. And that's Public um, Works LLC, right? No, no, no. That's that's actually that's virtu- that virtuous. Us, yeah. Public yeah, Public Works. Virtue.us. Public Works is a very very early yeah. uh, notion of the. That concept it was a consulting firm I started about 25 years ago to to deliver government consulting um, to to do the kinds of policy development and thinking that governments usually do themselves, but to to do it uh, externally. Um, but that was you know that was in the early internet age and was the beginning of of my thinking about this. Uh, Virtuous Virtue.us is an extension mm-hmm. of that into a you know a larger idea of a marketplace of government services. And so you know I got some people together to talk about that. The original idea was I I wanted to get three people who might grudgingly come because they had a sense of obligation as friends to me, um, you know, and who could uh, help me. Let's go hear me. Eric out. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, I wanted to hear them out more, which was, uh, you know, to bring in some people who know things in areas that I don't know myself, like nonprofit management or or finance or um, uh, advanced technology, to kind of brainstorm about how you how you take this very esoteric idea and turn it into actually a functioning business model. So I, I invited 10 people figuring that three of them would grudgingly say yes. And mm-hmm. they all said, wow, this sounds really, really interesting. I'll be there. I was kind of taken aback by that uh because to me i thought this is you know this is interests me a lot but to the average person it must be pretty boring um but i got a pretty excited response about this and i mean friends of mine from all over the country wanted to come and sit around and spend a day talking about this so i invited a couple more people a couple more people and it turned into a 25 person gathering um mm. I, I had some uh some folks who have uh founded uh, very successful social ventures and nonprofits. I had some former students of mine come and present their papers from my, my course. Um, I had a member of Congress here. We had a really interesting range of people who sat around for uh, what I originally thought would be an afternoon. It turned into a two-day retreat and brainstormed about a lot of these ideas about where is the country going. And at the end of it, um, Everybody said, you know, this has been a great conversation. This has been like the best conference I've ever gone to. We should do this on a regular basis and expand mm-hmm. it and get more people involved in the conversation. And Eric, you ought to start a conference. I thought that was a terrible idea. I have no <laughs> interest in, in being a conference right. organizer. But um, it related to something else I was working on. And I wound up uh, being convinced that we ought to do this. And I took the idea to my undergraduate alma mater, which is... Um, uh, Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and we conducted a conference there in 2017, I guess, in the fall of 2017. It was the first Greater Good Gathering. Uh, we've since moved it to Columbia University, which is where I went to law school, um, because it's you know it, it's just better situated in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've we've had two iterations of it there. We're working on the uh, what will now be the fourth Greater so, Good Gathering. So is this so is this an annual thing or? How frequently yes. are you meeting? And yes. Is it always the same people? <clears throat> no, it's it's different. And and this year, I think we're we're hopefully going to be able to expand it to uh, you know whoever wants to come because we'll probably be doing it virtually. Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out how to make it something that's an interesting uh, online event because it's you know it's it's generally been a, a day and a half. We may conve- cond- condense it down to you know a day, but <clears throat> excuse me, no nobody's going to sit and watch video online for eight hours. Um, right. So we're going to figure out a different format. I want to make sure that it's it's visually interesting and interactive. But we've had, um, we, we've focused on slightly different aspects of this issue each year, and we've had very different people for all of them. Um, this year, um, we had I mean, we had a real real interesting range of people. A lot of uh, uh, journalists and authors, um, uh, professors from Columbia and elsewhere. We had the, the woman who founded Zipcar, uh, we had the uh, research director from Microsoft. We had the former secretary of agriculture uh, paired him with a uh, a young woman who uh, came to the United States from Ethiopia, I believe, when she was young and has started a, uh, a high tech 
organization that um, helps build agriculture in sub-Saharan Africa by using high technology to, to improve crop yields. And they, uh, they talked, you know, the Secretary of Agriculture, former Secretary Tom Vilsack, and um, uh, this entrepreneur talking about the, the future of agriculture and how, um, how technology was changing that. We had a panel on the future of healthcare with uh, one of the um, uh, officers from uh, Oscar, which is a health insurance company that's trying to change how health, how health insurance is done in ways that promote, um, promote health rather than just charging people if they get sick. Um, uh, paired with uh, uh, a very prominent international doctor who just wrote mm-hmm. the report for the World Health Organization on what does the future of healthcare and medicine look like. So we have a real wide range of, of people who come and talk about a range of issues that's all basically centered around where's the world going because of technological change and what does that mean we need to be doing in order to uh, all of us together improve the life for all of us here on this planet. Time for a break. We'll be back with more of our conversation right after this. Hi, Drew Zagorski here, and I got two words for you, direct mail. To a business owner, those are two of the scariest words in the universe because they only bring to mind big dollar signs, little return on investment. Well, there's a better way to reach and stay in front of engage your customers, prospects, and cohorts. Now, here's two more words, constant contact. I've used them for years for my businesses, and the bottom line is this. It works. In fact, if you go to youdontsay.net, you can sign up for my email, and you'll never miss another episode of You Don't Say. For pennies per contact as compared to direct mail, I can reach and connect with up to 500 contacts. Yep, 500 contacts for as little as 20 bucks a month. Constant Contact provides powerful email tools that include a library of awesome design templates, list management and reporting, event management, polls, and more, as well as a website builder with e-commerce capabilities. So, if you're looking for a way to stay in front of your audience, Constant Contact is everything you need. And here, I'll make it easy for you to find them. Simply go to bit.ly forward slash YDS stories. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash YDS stories to start your free trial account today. As, as you're talking about that, and th- I'm here thinking about th- how big the role of technology is in all of this. Mm-hmm. Has a, any a discussion group within the greater good talked about hardening our data? I mean, we just need to look, you know, in the news to see somebody's been hacked and social media being polluted with all this uh, bogus information. Is there anybody in your group talking about that is how do we mitigate integrity in terms of this technology? Um, Yeah, that was uh, more or less the subject for the 2019 greater good gathering. And it's part of what I'm thinking about having us do in 2021. Um, We, we we focused uh, you know in 2019 last year on this notion of community, but it got at a lot of what you were uh, talking about. The the basic frame for it was you know if you go back 20 years ago, everybody said oh the internet is going to you know it, it's the salvation of everything. It's going to right, bring us together right. and make everybody happy. Um, it will end social isolation because shut-ins who otherwise wouldn't have any physical access to anybody else will now be able to connect online with people. Uh, we're all going to have a great conversation. We'll all be on Facebook and we'll all be friends and it's going to be a, a, a world of, of truth and information because everybody will be able to learn the truth and, and uh, you know, like uh, um, uh, the, the uh, kind of forgetting the name of the, the, the law that says that, you know, bad, bad money drives out good. Uh, yeah. the good, good information would drive out bad information. Uh, it's worked out to be more like more like money. And 20 years later, you know, uh, false information is driving out true information. There's a, there's a flood of, of info and data, so you can't really get at what the truth is. Um, right. It's causing polarization. It's driving people apart. It's causing social isolation where uh, 
uh, more teens are committing suicide because of uh, mm -hmm. internet bullying. You can go on and on. There was a sense that everything about digital technologies was going to create a world of happiness and light and freedom and joy. And instead, now, 20 years later, it's destroying everything that mankind holds dear. Uh, which of these visions is true, if either? Is it somewhere in between mm -hmm. or not? Is there anything that we can do about the negative side effects? Uh, what can we do to have to realize the the original idea that that all these technological changes were going to bring us together uh, instead of what it's now doing to drive people apart? And what can we be doing to create a greater sense of community and end the threat to community that digital technologies, particularly social media, seem to be causing today? So that was that was the theme. Uh, you know, a year or so ago, um, in early 2019 at the conference. Um, what I haven't really settled on what we'll talk about in 2021, but I'm so, I'm, where, so where did you guys land on that in 2019? I think most people left feeling pretty depressed. Um, <laughs> sure. I, mean, I think, I think most people are pretty depressed nowadays about this sort of thing. Um, the, the people there, um, you know, came from a wide range of disciplines who focus on technology and particularly social media and its effects. Um, you know, there are some things that were, that are good and uplifting. And in fact, I, what I, what I should add here is there's, there's something we've done at the end of every, um, every one of these. And, uh, the the videos from the conferences from the last two conferences are all available online at the website of the um, uh, uh, Academy of Political Science. If you go to uh, uh, the I think it's APS.org, but the, the Academy of Political Science has the 2019 and the 2020 conference sessions all available online uh, under the events page. Um, well, what we've done each year is have a panel of of students, um, you know, kids ranging from 19 to about 25, uh, either recent graduates of Columbia or Brown uh, or, or, or current students um, who are using technology to create new social ventures. And um, we started putting this at the end of every day because it's, it's tremendously uplifting and inspiring. And mm -hmm. I think it's the only thing that leaves people um, uh, on, a, on a happy note at the end of this because a lot of what's going on with technology in the world today is disturbing and is going in a bad direction. But these kids in their 20s are doing amazing things. They're starting businesses that are, um, you know, bringing uh, weather data to migrant herds people in uh, the Sahara to both improve their food yields and reduce conflicts over, you know, migratory territory. So we're reducing the causes of of wars in areas where governments are weak, which then, you know, wind up leading to global conflagrations, actually. So they're actually, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, 20-something kids who, who are laying the foundations for world peace or at least avoidance of, of mega wars that spring from, from, from nowhere and from the kind of conflicts that we're increasingly going to have in the 21st century. There are kids who are, are delivering, um, I mean, one of, one of my favorites were a group of students who were taking the waste from the production of beer and feeding that to a particular species of fly that feeds on beer waste and they devour the waste and, you know, and procreate and become lots of flies. They're mm -hmm. then taking the flies. If you're a fly lover, this is too bad for you. They, they obviously kill the flies. They turn the flies into um, uh, chicken feed, basically. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is that most chicken feed comes from fish stock nowadays. So we're producing a lot of fish and killing them just for purposes of feeding to chicken, chickens and other livestock, uh, you know, in order to get them a protein source. But it turns out a better, a better protein source because it, it does less environmental damage is to produce flies and have them be the, the protein stock rather than, than fish farming. Interesting. Um, and by producing the flies instead of the fish, which is, you know, environmental benefit number one, um, you're also, you're they're, they're, they're doing it by, um, by consuming beer waste that would otherwise, you know, get dumped in a landfill and be be environmental problem number two. So it's like a a, a triple solution to two environmental problems and you know our ability to produce chicken to the extent that's a public benefit. So so we and drink more beer, we feed more chickens. Yes, drink more beer, feed more chickens. <laughs> and and uh, needless to say, it was college students who figured out how to do this. But they're right. doing. You know, th there are ways. Um, you know, I think this is an important thing to remember, even uh, if not especially now when we're at this. Um, you know, particularly crisis-laden point in our history in lots of ways, you know, politically, economically, and public health-wise, um, 
there there are always people who are doing good things with the same things that people are doing bad things with right. and you know there there are ad, advances that spin out of even the most trouble troublesome developments and our our goal both as individuals and as a society of individuals working together should be to figure out how can we take things that at first look bad or problematic and figure out how to use them for the greater good. And that's you know, really what we're trying to focus on. Cool. So you said the, the 2021 will be the next gathering for greater uh, good. Yes. Uh, we, we, and, we've had it, we've had it in February each of the last two years. And I think that's what we'll aim for uh, this time. And um, yeah, the main issue is going to be figuring out technologically how to uh, hopefully get millions of people to tune in and have a really interesting conversation. You need to tap into some of those college students. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's who that's who I talk to on everything. The the twenty three year olds that know how to solve all the problems that you and I right. don't. Right. So, um, and that that event in twenty twenty one, you're saying is going to be open to the public. Or yeah, is it going to be mean, invite only? It, it is. It, no, no, I mean it's been open to the public all the time. Okay. Uh, it's just a fairly limited public that uh, treks and goes there. But I mean, we've had a couple hundred people each of the last few years and it's been growing. Um, I mean, really been growing geometrically in the three years we've had it. So I feel good about that. But, um, you know, kind of apropos of what I was just saying that, you know, um, I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish in that you can always find a silver lining in a dark cloud, but you can, you can find some way to put things to the good. One of the good things that I'm hoping that comes out of uh, the, the, current situation at least as far as the the covid situation concerned is yeah you know it i i think it is going to um uh if not and certainly severely limit our ability to get a couple hundred people together in new york city in the dead of winter mm-hmm. next next year um so we're going to have to go technological but if we do it right and figure out how to make it an interesting program that really engages people uh, with the kind of speakers and audience participation that we've had in the past with, you know, a wide range of really, really interesting people and put that online and make it accessible to people. Well, you know, everybody in the world will be able to join that conversation and hopefully mm-hmm. that will become an even better conference than it's been in the past. Right. Well, I, I know you're a Giants fan. I'm a White Sox fan. You think we'll get <laughs> to see the our teams stuff in the background? Yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You think we'll get to see our guys on the field this year? Or is that, uh, is that a situation that needs to be worked out by the greater good? (laughs) No, I think that's going to take care of itself. It looks like the the owners and the players in all sports are coming up with a way to do this. Um, You know, I'm kind of a traditionalist when it comes to baseball. My, my, uh, my, I I had a a very older father. I mean, he was in his fifties, his mid fifties when I was born, which back then was, uh, you know, pretty excessive. My, my dad actually goes back to the early 20th century. He got Christy Mathewson's autograph when he was a little kid. So he he's a baseball fan from way way back, and to, he 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 always roots for the national. Or I'm sorry, he's passed away now, but he always rooted for the National League in the World Series because to him the American League was an upstart league like the World Football League or something. Right. The junior you know, circuit. Yeah, well, it was really junior to him. I mean, it didn't exist when he was born. So mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, he was a very very much of a traditionalist, and he was a New Yorker, so he rooted for the New York Giants. Um, I grew up. Um, well, I, I was born in New York and we moved to Phoenix where the Giants farm team was. And then we moved to San Francisco. So I always lived in a giant city, but you know, to me, they were, they were the San Francisco Giants. To my dad, they were the New York Giants. They just happened to play in San Francisco. Right. So, um, right. you know, I'm, I'm not happy with this, this newfangled thing they're going to do where they're putting American league and national league teams together in the same division and doing this, you know, utterly ahistorical uh, way of, doing this season it's it just feels it feels wrong to a traditionalist like me right but at least right. it'll be baseball designated hitter or no designated hitter no designated hitter that's wrong i'm you i'm looking i'm an american league fan i'm a white Sox fan but i think the designated hitter takes so much strategy out of the game but anyway that's a conversation for another day i guess but so <laughs> eric how how do people become involved with the greater good gathering and where can they find information about it um well we have a website like everybody else greatergoodgathering.org it's all one word greatergoodgathering.org um there's some stuff on there uh about the um uh you know the the origins and the the goal of the conference we've got this past year's uh, uh program up there so you can see who all the speakers were um the we we have not gotten the video from this year's conference 
up there yet, but that is available on, um, on, on YouTube. Uh, I have a, you know, there's an Eric Schnurr YouTube channel, uh, for what that's worth, uh, mm-hmm. that basically has the, um, uh, I think it's got the video from, from, from all, f- well, it's, it's got the, the first and second years are up there, uh, for the second and third years, as I said, you can go to the, um, uh, Academy of Political Science website. And, um, uh, I guess that, that would give you the, the, the bulk of it. And then there's something else about the greater good gathering that I should mention that's talked about on the website. Um, it's something that we were trying to get started and did on a pilot basis this year. And uh, it's obviously harder to think about how we're moving forward with this, with the current situation with lockdowns around the country and so forth. But, you know, that will be behind us at some mm-hmm. point. And that is that I've wanted to get um, more people involved in this and make this a sort of grassroots thing of thinking about the greater good and how we can be building a better future for our country um, and have it be something that's not just a, an annual conversation in New York and that's it. And if you're not there, you're not there, but right. to start similar sorts of things around the country where anybody, you know, kind of like the way that the Ted talks have been sort of franchised out as, you know, anybody can start a TEDx in their town. Um, we're, we're trying to put together a thing where anybody can have a, a greater good gathering in their town. Uh, whether it's, um, a couple hundred people at a, a college um, uh, auditorium or 10 people sitting around at the local Starbucks. And we put together a kind of structured system for having conversations around cool. the, uh, the issue theme of the year and having this, um, you know, eventually we're going to build a sort of wiki system for, for people, for all these individual conversations that are going to come together and hash out how can we develop uh, an, an agenda that most Americans can, uh, hopefully agree on that's different from what anybody in the political system is saying today um, about how we address the various challenges uh, before us. And so we did a, a little bit of experimenting with that this past year. I had a, um, uh, we, we've called these policy hackathons uh, as they're modeled off of the, the okay. tech hackathons that, that uh, are sponsored around the country, usually by universities or, or tech companies. But, you know, to get uh, just regular people together for a short period of time to hack a solution, so to speak, to a policy problem. So we we had one of these at City College in New York in New York, and then another one at the Rand uh, Institute in Los Angeles uh, that had both students and community members and faculty there. And those were good kind of proving grounds for how you make something like this work. And we did um, uh, three three of them. Yeah, I guess we had three kind of grassroots sessions like that in communities around Iowa in the week or two before the Iowa caucuses. And these were, you know, they were nonpartisan. They're open to anybody. We had one in uh, uh, westernmost um, Iowa, which is a, a rural farming community. Uh, we had one in the center just uh, outside of Des Moines at um, uh, Simpson College. And then we had and were, one. And were these, were these led by locals? Local people? Uh, yeah, I, I went out for each of these, and sure. we, we had a, a leader for the group uh, who was local in each case. Um, the third one was, was at the Cedar Rapids Library, so it was more community-based. And um, yeah, we had different sizes and different types of people and different discussions at them. Um, and uh, there's something about, about those up on the website as well. Um, and, uh, you know, it was an interesting experiment. I think we learned a lot, and I think we're... we're we were ready until the um, COVID-19 stuff came along to start trying to build this out nationally where, you know, I was hoping that by uh, sometime late summer, early fall, we would be doing maybe about two dozen of these at different places around the country. Uh, maybe we'll still be able to do that. Maybe we'll have to do them virtually, but, you know, I wanted to have just uh, uh, you could decide to do one in, in Beaverton and say, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to get together whoever wants to come to my house, whoever wants to meet next Sunday at the Starbucks. We're going to get together for two hours and brainstorm about this particular issue that's being put nationally to, you know, how do we as a country improve uh, what we're doing about X? Um, right. And, uh, you know, uh, it would depend on what we're trying to focus on next year, next February at the conference in New York, but have a whole series of things that would, you know, national conversations would feed into this where, you know, we basically take back the political dialogue for average people to be able to, to set what the terms of debate are and to come up with solutions, which I believe is the best way to come up with solutions to go back to something we were saying earlier. So if someone, 
has an idea and they want to do this, is there, does, does the greater good uh, ha- on the website, is there an email list that they can subscribe to or how do they reach out to you um, to yeah, there, there, there is, pitch there is their a topic? There's a contact form on the website. Uh, I think there's a separate tab you can go to and okay. it will um, uh, wind up getting sent in directly to me. And uh, so, yeah, if people really want to reach me, of course, in this day and age, I get unsolicited emails from people. If, you know, if they want to find you, they can find you. So right. if, if you're listening and you want to find me, you can easily do it. But, I did. Uh, <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> but if you know, you're specifically interested in the, uh, the, the greater good, you can go on greatergoodgathering.org and go to the contact page and send me a note. And uh, yeah, I would I would really love to get more of these grassroots uh, gatherings going in the next yeah. six months and get a national conversation going on how how can we advance the greater good in America? You know, one thing that's been been inspiring to me about this is the extent to which people across the political spectrum care about something like the greater good and care about the future of our country and want to do something about it. And you know, um, when when I first started putting this together, I was surprised to, to find that I could, um, uh, I, I could contact virtually anybody. I mean, CEOs of major companies and major government leaders and say, you know, I'm putting together a conference to do such and such. And, you know, mm-hmm. would, would you be interested in coming? And I was shocked by, you know, I thought it would be like pulling teeth to get people to do this because, you know, who am I? They don't know me from Adam. But there's something about this notion of the greater good and of how we can overcome ideology to try to make the country better that I think people are hungry for and really responded to. And, you know, my, my favorite note that I got back, I contacted some big CEO on LinkedIn, you know, and I sent him my usual thing, like, you, you don't know me, but here's what I'm trying to right. do. And I got this note back and this is the, the specifics were unique to this one, but it was fairly typical of the kind of responses I got from people. He wrote back to me and said, you know, this sounds great. I really want to be there. Unfortunately, I have a meeting set up that, that day with the president of Chile, but let me see if I can move it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know? Priorities, right? Yeah. but You got yeah, to yeah, bump uh, the president. Yeah. Uh, and I got a lot of responses, not quite like I, I'll see if I can move my meeting with the president of Chile, but a lot of things of, of people who there's something about, there's something about this, at, at least at this point in time that I think really hit people that yeah. no matter how divided we may feel the country is, the overwhelming majority of Americans want to put their hands out to other people and want to work together and want to see uh, the country succeed. They want to see people come together. They they want to see things work and be better, um, regardless of where they sit on the ideological spectrum. And so, you know, I think there's a there's a space for this. There's a need for this. There's a demand for this. Uh, I just need to figure out where there's money for this so that I can hire people to make it work, right. other than right. just me doing it. So, right. if you're out there listening and you want to help, please do. There you go. Well, with that, Eric. Um, I really appreciate your willingness to talk today and spend a little time to share this big idea for the greater good and how we can do those things that you talked about, about breaking down barriers and getting together and moving our country forward in a better way. So now it's time for that commentary. Please hang with me on this. It's hard and kind of sad, and I simply can't sit and say nothing. The last couple weeks have been horrible in America. Our worst demons have once again been exposed and let loose due to the murder of George Floyd. This, unfortunately, is not a new thing. From the moment Europeans first set foot on the continent, people of color have been subjugated, enslaved, minimized, and beaten down. But let's be honest, Europeans didn't invent racism. It existed everywhere before there was even a Europe, and as long as people have walked the earth. It's not always white versus black, or Lakota Sioux versus the Plains Nation, the Chinese versus the Japanese, Germans versus the Jews, Israelis versus Palestinians, Christian versus Muslim. We're all guilty of it. Maybe it's a sad part of our human DNA. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to say. In the late 18th century, a group of people were pushed to a breaking point because of an oppressive government. They started a violent, bloody conflict to break the cycle of oppression and gain their freedom. Many innocent people were killed who happened to be in the line of fire of both the army of the oppressor and that of the oppressed. 
This is our origin story. Through the American Revolution, our nation was born, and today, sadly, when we see rioting, we wonder why and shake heads with disapproval. But this is us, and the truth of it is, how can we actually fault the rioters? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think acting out with violence is the answer. Violence begets violence. But after centuries of being enslaved, lynched, beaten down, and locked out, and taking it for all that time, how could this not be the outcome? So how can we be surprised? How can we condemn this quote-unquote senseless activity? But is it senseless? In fact, I don't know. I'd make the argument that it makes all the sense in the world, and it's probably decades, maybe centuries overdue. We've helped to reap the whirlwind. We created it. We own it. Certainly there have been some flat-out bad actors and some who instigated violence without any motivation other than committing violence. But many more, I believe, were just people pushed to the breaking point. We would do the same eventually if the roles were reversed. So, as for me, I don't know if I can fault all of the rioters on this one. Only on a systemic, generational, institutional racism that we didn't do enough to overcome. I can never empathize with people of color because, as a white kid from a middle-class family, my mom never had to worry about when I went out to play whether I would get shot. My dad never had to tell me to look the other way when I was told I couldn't go into a store because of my skin or how to lay down when law enforcement was around, even though I didn't do anything illegal. I was never prevented from casting a vote. All this being said, I can sympathize with them, and I do painfully so, as so many of us of all races and backgrounds do. How could we not? But sympathy, thoughts, and prayers isn't enough. My hope is that this will cool down and real dialogue and real change can happen. Do I have the answers? Again, I'm not that smart. But one thing we can all do is to seek them out with open hearts and minds and support people who are affecting the answers. We can step in and speak out peacefully, I hope, when we see injustice. We can help people who are being frozen out of the voting process and then vote for the change makers as if our lives depended on it. Because as we've seen these last couple weeks, it does. Peace. Thanks for listening in. To listen to more episodes... Visit us online at youdontsay.net or wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Deezer, and many, many more. If you have a story to tell, if you know somebody who does, or if you just have a few ideas on topics you'd like to hear conversations about, shoot us an email to info at youdontsay.net. Thanks again, and we'll see you in the next episode.